This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. Good, good afternoon. My name is Bart's friend, Eli. I know. I will be happy to receive the, uh, any mix-up. It's a compliment. And uh, I have a chance to share a little bit today, so um, I look forward to this and what God will, will speak to us. Conversations I have often turn toward the topic of calling, especially when I tell people that my wife and I, with our five children, intentionally moved to a mountainous Muslim-majority region not far from here. We don't live there anymore. We live in Tbilisi. But people often ask, well, why did you decide to go there? How did you know that you should go? We have all heard stories of people who have experienced very dramatic callings to one place or another. In fact, we have a teammate. When I talked to him about going to this region, he said, I was called there at age 12. Oh, all right. I was called there five months ago. We have also probably know people who talk in no uncertain terms about their decision-making in terms of God telling and leading and speaking to them to do this or that. The fact is that God does and certainly can speak to us very directly and very dramatically and very overtly. But in my experience, as often as not, in fact, more often than not, he doesn't. Um, In fact, he leads and speaks in ways that are very normal and everyday. His leading often looks like just sound decision-making. I'm really captivated by these servants that we meet in this parable trying to do the will of God with what he's given them. Uh, Talents is the original word, and it's in some translations, and it's where we get our English word talent. It's a sack of gold, and I think it can also be applied to the English meaning of it, which is all that we're endowed with um, by God's grace. Two of these guys hit the nail on the head, right? They give 100% return on investment to the master, They receive his exuberant commendation, and they enter into his joy. And one servant fails dismally. He misunderstands the character of the master. He listens to fear. He falls into sin. And he's cast out from the master's household altogether. So I don't want to be like him. And I would like to be like the first two. I'd like to see, look in this parable and see the difference between these two sets of servants that it doesn't lie in this parable in their ability to discern God's will or to hear from the the Holy Spirit. Jesus is telling this parable to teach his disciples that he's going away, but he'll return. And in the interim, he has some expectations for how we will conduct ourselves and live life. This parable teaches that living a fruitful life that is meaningful for God and for eternity has less to do with a particular spiritual technique or attentiveness, and more to do with just knowing who the master is and being in relationship with him in the first place. This doesn't diminish or take away from the Spirit's leading. It's just not mainly what this parable is about. The first two servants seem to understand this from the start. They, they apparently act with crystal clear sense of what they should do, and the master doesn't say anything. The money is given. There's no delay. There's no struggle. It says the first servant went at once. 
and traded, and so did the second. This is very striking to me because this lacks instructions of any kind. They're conspicuously absent. The master gives the money, and he leaves. Nothing is said about a discernment process. There is no record of prayer, of seeking advice or counsel, or any other activities that you might expect to come along with a big decision for surely investing what would be today, you know, technically roughly about a bazillion dollars um, would warrant some considerable discernment. I mean, literally, this adds up to some matter of millions. So again, let me just caveat. I am not saying that discernment was not exercised or that they didn't seek counsel or do research or pray or fast. And I'm not in any way saying that we are supposed to be hasty or brash in our decisions. Scripture is brimful of warnings against folly and full of admonitions to wisdom. So we're on, on safe turf here. I am saying that this process is not what is on display here. Something else is, and I'm interested to dig into that. It seems that all that was needed for the servants to give an appropriate God-glorifying response with their lives was preloaded in the situation. It's in the context. It's already there. They already knew everything they needed. So when the money is handed over, they're off and running. So these first servants get right who their master is, and by getting that right, they're freed to fruitful labor and great endeavors. So what exactly did they get right about the master? Let's start at the beginning. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one, he gave five talents. Stop the bus. Let's just start with what we have there. We have plenty to go on from the very beginning. Two things straight away. First of all, this is a a guy who's got wealth. He is technically, the term would be loaded. He's handing over five talents, which again is something like $6 million. It's hard to exactly say. The footnote, you know, it's it's one of them is 20 years wages. So multiply that by five, you have 100 years wages. So whatever that is to you, (laughs) to me it's a lot. This guy has wealth, and then he has plans to do something with it. He puts it to work. So this is the, we would call this guy a businessman, or an entrepreneur is probably the better term. Entrepreneur is someone who starts things, often businesses, but not always. It doesn't have to be business. You don't have to be a business person to be entrepreneurial. It comes from this French root, entreprendre. You go down to the root of the word, which I like to do. um, You find that it is someone who goes out to, to take in hand something. They, they take up a, an activity, a task. And it's related to our word enterprise, the English word undertaking. It all implies something big, often complicated, often of grand scope, and often risky. That's what an entrepreneur is. An entrepreneur tends to have certain characteristics. They're hardy people. They're optimistic. They see possibility in the glittering, in the dark unknown ahead of them. Entrepreneurs are unsqueamish in the face of great odds. They like taking risks. They have a stomach for that. They are able to handle loss and setback and ambiguity in life. They're creative. They're resourceful. Overall, they delight in adventure and trying something new. And if I had done this well, I would have pulled out right now a little red box 
with a black bull on it, which is sitting on my table at home. And I would show you in my hand what would be possibly the world's last remaining bottle of Toro shave oil. This was a business that my big brother Max started, and it failed. But not without me getting a whole bunch of these over the years as stocking stuffers and Christmas gifts. I remember how thrilled I was when it started, that there was this business, and they printed it, and there was a label and everything. It was you know, shrink-wrapped. It was really official. And it became instantly the best product I'd ever seen in my entire life, and I was ready to knock down every door to spread the cause. And I remember my total dismay when the thing went belly up. The, the vision, you know, was not realized. My brother was not overly dismayed. I'm sure it was challenging. But he, in fact, started many other businesses. He had a business selling flag football playbooks. I think that may still exist. He uh, went in on a cake-making business. He started a graphic design gig with his son. None of these exists anymore. Um, that's part of his nature as an entrepreneur. He starts things, and he has a stomach for them not all working. Incidentally, he now runs a very successful law firm working with startup companies. Um, I'm not going to get this exactly right, but I was just told that venture capitalists, you know, people in Silicon Valley who have unthinkable amounts of money and they, they give it to causes you know, and businesses that they think are, are going to make it big, something like, and this might be a little low, 95% of their investments fail. So these people are doling out millions and millions, and 95% of what they dole out is lost. It never comes back to them. Because the 5% or the 3 or 2 or whatever it is, percent of what makes it, makes it so big as to make all the loss worthwhile. That's the mindset of an entrepreneur. That's who this fella is. He has this vision. The opposite might be, I don't know, an accountant. And no offense if you're an accountant out there. Or an actuary. Or one of these people who's, you know, quick with the abacus. The, the accountant is focused on what is, the balance sheet. What is in the bank? And especially accountants are focused on what isn't there and tracking it down, right? You don't, you don't want the, the tax office accountant. If they knock on your door, it's a bad thing, right? Something's, something has gone wrong. And the fact is that the master is, is not this. He's the entrepreneur. I should hasten to add, God is both. God is not one or the other, and one is not better than the other. I'm, I'm kind of setting them up this way for the sake of, of the argument. God launches new things, and he tracks everything down to the cent. You know, every tear, he counts. He knows every hair in your head. It takes all types. There's no mistakes. But I still think the heart of the master and the heart of God is entrepreneurial. At heart, he is about great gain at great risk. This is really important to get, because if we don't have that, nothing else in the story makes sense, like why he shares his wealth with these guys. So our first point is he's an entrepreneur. Our second point, he's an entrepreneur who shares his wealth, shares the work. I want to focus on this one particular word. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property, entrusted. I think this word says a lot about the master and his relationship with the servant. 
The word means to give something over to someone, to totally give into their hands, to put it there and let go. Submit something to their power, totally. A total abandonment. Hypothetically, this master did not have to involve these guys. right? He, he seems to have plenty of wealth to go around. This is a deliberate choice. And he drops the money in their lap. Probably, literally, the, the, the thing to get here is that these servants knew that the master had really, truly entrusted the fate of his property up to them. It was in their hands. And this, for the first two, was motivating. This really motivated them in their service. It wasn't the opposite. It wasn't because he was looking over their shoulder that they performed well. He is not micromanaging. <laughs> we don't get the sense that he's managing at all. Right? Gives and leaves. He's not you know, a helicopter mom here. There's no surveillance cameras. There's not weekly reports. He left zero instructions, and before his return, he visited a total of zero times. I mean, this is like the best boss ever. This is a lesson for us. God is interested in sharing the kingdom work. He doesn't have to. He's absolutely capable of doing all that he sees fit without our help. But he doesn't share it in just a shadow puppet kind of way or just in a perfunctory, as a perfunctory act. He really entrusts his gifts to us so that we can really participate in his work. We'll come back around to this, but we don't always want this. He has put kingdom wealth, the gifts and grace of the gospel and his spirit, I mean, he's put it into our hands. I like that this translation says bag of gold. Imagine feeling the bag of gold. I mean, imagine feeling the weight of it literally. That's what these guys did. They received it. They felt the weight of it. Have you ever had a lot of money on you? Have you had to travel with, like, like I went to on a, with a team to Africa once, and we had to bring $10,000 to a church there in cash. And I was like Jason Bourne in the airport, minus the good looks and martial arts skills. I mean, I was on, you know, I was like trying to be real cool, and I'm like, I will drop that old lady if she looks at me one more time. <laughs> I may not be the best example, but I kind of rose to the occasion, more or less. I was very aware of the weight of the gravity, in a sense of the glory of what I had, and it changed me. I rose to the occasion. We rise to the occasion when we're given responsibility. I don't rise to the occasion for my $5 sunglasses, which I left in a taxi. Well, I thought I did. I actually found them just before the sermon and ruined my illustration, but I'm glad I found them. Um, but, you know, I, left them on, I, I leave stuff on the seat of a taxi, a hat, all the time. I don't do that with my wallet or my children. I treat it differently. <laughs> This is how God wants us to grow. He leads us to the edge of what we've attained, of our ability, and he calls us out. He bids us out further through this challenge into risk and into some struggle. And in that way, we grow and are sanctified. He's not reckless with this. Some people might say, I don't want that. I don't want to be burdened with a bag of gold. He does this lovingly. He doesn't just dump it in their laps. He entrusts his property. What does it say? To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each, according to his ability. He's a wise 
father. We sang about that. I appreciate your words here at the beginning. He's the best dad. He knows exactly how much we can handle, and he brings us there, and he has great hope and expectation for us. He leads us sovereignly always to the edge, to the edge of our patience, to the edge of our confidence, to the edge of our ability, and that's where he meets us. He loves the edge. He's an edgy guy. I try to do this as a dad. I might give my eight-year-old a a BB gun, but I'm not going to give him a shotgun. I wouldn't give him a shotgun anyway. I I might let, you know, my my 11-year-old wants to drive, so he can drive grandma's mower right now, looking forward to it this summer, but not a car. It's not there yet. You know, we we get this. God gives for our good is the point here. So he's not liable to the charge that he just gives recklessly and it hurts us. This is not when helping hurts. This is true of his whole character. Nothing comes to us except by his sovereign decree. You know, our, your life is hidden with Christ in God. A double layer, double wall there. If anything comes to you, good or evil, challenging or even temptation, God doesn't tempt, but he allows things into our lives absolutely on purpose and sovereignly. We can take great confidence. We have a lot of promises about this in Scripture. If it's temptation... No evil befalls us except what he allows. It says, no, tempta- no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. But God is faithful, will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, will provide the way of escape. So you may endure it. That's from 1 Corinthians, I think. Or if it's a challenge, something that's not a temptation, but that's really hard. How many times are we invited? You know, if anyone lacks wisdom, let us ask God. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. We have these promises because God is saying, look, things are coming your way. You may not like it. You may not get it. It might really be hard, but I'm sufficient. I'm a good dad. Everything I give, I give on purpose and for your good. The master doesn't heap on the servants saying it's going to hurt them or that's more than they can bear. So what that means is that in all of our lives, over everything we do, there's an expectation of success. There's an expectation that we will persevere and come through. This leads to our third observation about what these two servants got right. The master's an entrepreneur. He likes to share in the work, and why does he do it? He delights in faith-filled activity, he shares by entrusting gifts, and he does this because he's coming back to bless. He's not just coming back, he's not coming back with a big ugly stick, he's coming back to bless. And they get this right about God. It turns out that the increase of wealth is not really what he's mainly after. And you can see this if we jump ahead. So he goes away, and they do their things, and after a long time, he's like, um, might be a while, after a long time, he comes back, and he settles up accounts with them. And what ultimately happens? He doesn't just say, thank you very much. He says, well, well done. That was amazing. 100% return. I'll put you over more now. Enter into the what? The what? Hello? Anyone? Enter into the joy of your master. Enter into the joy of your master. He is great because he shares. 
He's a great master who wants not just to accumulate his wealth, but he wants to bring people into the work so he can share in the blessing of it. If you want to be fruitful in life, if we want our work to matter for God, there's no trick or technique other than really laying hold of who he is and what he's about and charging boldly ahead with what he has for, has given us, what is right in front of us. That may vary as much as one talent to five, but no gift is small. Nothing in our lives is unusable. It's knowing your God, believing what he's done for you, and then running ahead to gain glory for him. Well, let's take us to the third servant. Because I really don't want to be like the third servant. <laughs> I want to learn the lesson here. This is really what the parable's about. You know, the first two guys, you kind of blitzed through them. They did amazing, straight A's. They, they got it. But the third servant didn't, and we unpack how he didn't get it. Uh, he was afraid. He hid it. Why did he do that? Well, he basically got the whole thing wrong. He got the master wrong, and everything was downhill from there. He got the heart of the master wrong. And this led him to fear and to sin and disaster. All right, let's look at the three ways that he missed the master. Missed out who he was. First of all, he doesn't see the master as an entrepreneur. He calls him a hard man. Right? Master, he says. He came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. And then he says stuff that's not true about the master. Reaping where you didn't sow, gathering where you have not scattered no seed. So he, he doesn't get who the master I don't know why. Maybe there's some competition in his heart. Maybe he sees the greater gifts and breeds bitterness, and he says, why did I only get $500,000? Seems like a dumb question to ask, but it's easy for us to do, right? (laughs) The master is not an entrepreneur. In fact, he just kind of flips his whole character around. He's not generous. He's not magnanimous. He's not grace-filled and optimistic and looking for possibility. He's a hard man. He's cold. He's a scrooge. The, even if there's grace, it's just to escape his own judgment. He's ultimately, fundamentally, against us, not for us. That's what this guy is saying. You're a hard man. You know, in Isaiah 29, there's this great verse. God says, you turn things upside down. And by doing that with the nature of the master, he, he misses everything. Um, God is not a miserly scrooge. The very act of creating us was gratuitous, meaning he didn't have to create to begin with. Like, I don't have to exist. You don't have to exist. Everything that he's done from the beginning was a free choice of grace. From their shot through history is God's generous nature, his abundance toward us. We turn things upside down like the servant, and no good comes of it. So he gets his heart wrong. He's not an entrepreneur. He's not out for good. He's a hard man. Secondly, he's not sharing the gift. He's, he's imposing. Right? He, he doesn't receive this as an opportunity. He sees the, the money as something crushing. It's an imposition. He says, 
He says, it's really biting what he says. He says, I was afraid, I went and hid your talent on the ground. Here, you have what is yours. I didn't even, I didn't ever receive this. I just held it, and you can have it back. Good riddance. Here, have what's yours. I have nothing to do with this or you. This flows from that first misunderstanding. If God's not an entrepreneur with an eye for joyful gain, then this talent is a, a test at best. It's a trap. It's just an opportunity for me to fail. Friends, there are people in this room for whom life is perceived as just an opportunity to fail, either for us or for someone else. (laughs) We totally miss that it's the exact opposite way around. I I, I fall into this. There are days when I'm stewing and, and grumpy in the corner and and resentful toward God, and, you know, it's living in negative integers. The maximum you can get is to break even at zero. Other than that, everything is lost. Can I just say, if you're ever there, to just come out and join the party? I mean, (laughs) it's like the father with the prodigal son, right? And he comes home, and there's this party, and the second son, the dutiful son, the law-abiding son, goes out and sulks in the field, and the father's like, come in. Just come in. There's a party going on. I think when we misunderstand that all of life is really an entrepreneurial adventure with God, we can get stuck in this, in this trap. We misunderstand that the gifts that he shares are for our good. I think that there are a couple practical things to draw from this. It's not only misunderstanding who God is. Um, I think that there's some, some just human nature involved in, in this. Um, so when God shares with us an opportunity, an entrepreneurial opportunity, he's sharing a blessing, but it also comes with work, right? And this is something we can just not want to do. Just in our flesh, in our sin, um, it means labor and risks and unknowns. So apart from any warping of who God is, there's just our sinful inclination to not want to have to get outside ourselves. I just tallied up some reasons that I think that we don't act for God. Why, why is it that we hold back sometimes? Why is it that we sulk in the shadows or don't pursue gain, great gain for God? Um, there are probably a lot of these. The first one he mentions is fear, right? We, we're afraid. I've heard people say, I don't want to mess up God's plan, right? Super theologically unsound, we know. We can like, but we feel that. Like, I just don't want to screw it up. I'm afraid of looking bad. If I step out, I could be exposed. My weakness could show. My sinfulness could show. If I show up and really invest at this church or if I really try and do ministry, I'm going to be shown for who I am. And maybe I'm just afraid of that. There's unbelief. I don't really believe who God is and that he really wants good for me. I really see him as a puppet master maybe, or maybe I don't really believe that my life really matters. He's kind of, you know, everything's fixed and deterministic, which it isn't. Our hands, you know, drop drop the wheel at that point. I think a big one is just good old-fashioned laziness. I have only a little bit participated in starting one business, and it was a ton of work, most of which my business partner did. 
I don't know if you've ever started a business or started anything, a program, a Bible study, a camp, a family. It takes so much work, right? People say it takes like two years to get your business started, and at the beginning, you're doing every job, so you're working around the clock. Um, yeah, the root words used to describe this wicked and lazy servant are really about his hesitancy to engage, his unwillingness to get off the couch, basically. That's what's so wicked about him is in the face of this great generosity, he just is lazy. This is the loafer the, that Proverbs talks about, the sluggard, you know, who turns on his bed as a door turns on its hinges one way and then the other, but can't get out. You know, the slugger that buries his hand in the dish and is just too lazy to bring it up again to his mouth. Right? These absurd images from, from Proverbs is actually what's at, at play here. Um, we may be unwilling just to face the effort of doing something <laughs> new, of, of making, of creating. It takes a tremendous amount of energy to create something new. And that's what God's calling us out to do. He's not calling us out to, you know, paint by number. No offense to painting by number. It's great. But that's not what the, the life of discipleship is. It's not everything is totally set, and all you do is just kind of wend your way through the, the, uh, the, you know, the kids' playland, and there's, everything's padded with foam, and you can't really get lost. It's just sort of a thrill ride. That's not our lives. We're in the sovereign, capable, loving hands of God who will never let us fall, but... There is real risk. There is real effort. Um, we may just not feel like we have the energy to try something for God. We might be afraid of risk. We might be too caught up with um, our perception of reality and our calculations. Um, the idea of failure or loss may seem too great. Maybe we're daunted by ambiguity. It takes a stomach to walk forward in fog. Um, maybe we're afraid of success. If I do something for God and it works, that could really change my life, and I'm pretty comfortable right now. I write these down like, this is like the first thing that I wrote in the sermon. I was like, oh, I know I don't follow God. Like, I relate to every one of these. I think that's why the New Testament urges us towards zeal and Energy and firing up so often. Listen to this from Hebrews. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is out of joint may not be put out of joint further. Um, Paul says in Romans, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Like, why the behests to being stirred up? I, I just think it's sort of the second law of thermodynamics. Spiritually, you know, we tend toward coolness and toward inactivity and in, uh, into chaos. And it would seem that we need to be stoked up and encouraged. These first two servants were stoked up because they knew the master. They knew him, and that was what they needed to know to go forward. The master is not just returning to measure our results but he's coming to pour out blessing. You get the clear sense that if they had even tried, if the last servant had even tried, the master would have commended him on some level. I totally think that's where we stand with God. It was very clear that the amount is not important. It's the effort. It's the faith. It's the, 
I see you for who you are. I take you at your word. And I'm just going to, I'm going to do something. So what's in front of you? Like what stirs in your heart? Like it could be so, so small. It could be, I am just going to, I really am afraid to, but I feel like I should try and ask my spouse to pray with me. I really want to do something for the kids next door and summertime. I don't know. I really want to start a well water project in another country. It can be on like any scale. I want to say something about Jesus to my coworker. Just like those are the stirrings of that adventuresome heart of God in you. And I think what he's saying in this parable is, yeah, great. Enough navel-gazing and waiting for perfect discernment and for some crystal clear answer as if God wants to remove every shade of doubt or uncertainty. Again, I'm not saying be hasty. But I think he's like, yeah, you know what I'm about. You've got certain things for me. Just go use them. Go for it. I will back you every bit of the way. I think I just want to end with two two other quick verses. The blessing that the master is returning with is total assurance. Jesus is returning with the kingdom. That's what he's going to get, and he's coming back with the kingdom in hand with total victory. And in that swoop, he catches up all of his people as an absolute certainty. If you're in Christ, you're going to his kingdom. What that means is that every loss on this side of that is proximate. It's smaller than the gain. Every loss, everything that we could try and lose on this side, and I know I'm, there are many, like, I know we know real pain and real loss in this room. I'm not saying this blithely. It all pales, it is all small compared to the gain that will be ours. Fear not, little flock, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is coming. Fear not. Don't let your hearts be troubled. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have not told you that I'm going to prepare one for you. There's a room with your name on it. It's there. It's prepared. That is total assurance. Jesus is coming for you. That gives us that freedom, that lift, that gumption, that, hey, maybe God wants to do something through me. Everything flows from this. We miss this and we miss the whole Christian life in an instant. We're back to working for God, earning our place, holding on to our salvation, meriting his favor, and that misses the entire scope of what Jesus came to do. He has changed our hearts from stone to flesh so that we can feel this love and share in what is basically his adventure. I think it's as simple as it is for these servants to know what our master's about, know that he's coming back, and be about his business. I encourage you to take that into this week. And I really like to get real practical, so I won't do it, do it, but I'm going to ask you 
to at least think about, if not write down before you leave this building, one thing that maybe God's stirring in your heart. And he wants you to take a step out in, trusting that he wants you to be part of the blessing of his great kingdom that is coming. So let me end with prayer, and we'll continue in worship. Oh, Father God, how much is lit up in our hearts when we catch sight of you, when we see you for who you are more and more. And I ask God that through these words, through this scripture, through this worship service, and that you will bless us as we go, Lord, with a greater confidence in you, a greater clarity of who you are, and that we would be freed, Lord, to venture with you, to venture on you wholly, and to let nothing else intrude in our confidence. And I ask God that you will do in this church and through, through your people here truly um, more than we ask, could ask or imagine. And I pray that you will put in everyone's mind something huge or small, some step of obedience, some step of faith in you that you're stirring them up to do, God, that you would be glorified in the world and that you would, your joy would um, be heightened in our hearts. Thank you, Lord. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at TICF.com hyphen georgia.org thanks for listening